Hello, and welcome back to the Egyptian History Podcast, The History of Egypt, Episode 61, The Two Lands Serve Her, in which the infant king Tutmos III is upstaged by his stepmother, a woman we know all too well, the world-famous Queen Hatshepsut. Somewhere near 1495 BCE, Thutmose II was dead. After a short reign of 4 to 14 years, the king had joined his ancestors in the afterlife. Behind him, he left his young son, Thutmose III, his concubine, Isis, and his wife, the high priestess of Karnak and daughter of a king, Hatshepsut. When the old king died, his son was too young to wield power effectively on his own. So, in a tradition dating all the way back to the First Dynasty, Thutmose III was king in name only. Real power, executive power, was wielded on his behalf by his closest female relative, the new king's mother, Isis. Wait, no, that's not right. Isis wasn't in charge of anything. She disappears from our history after giving birth to Thutmose III. Instead, the king's stepmother was in charge. The god's wife of Amun, high priestess of Karnak and widow of the deceased king, Hatshepsut took control of the situation soon after her husband passed away. As queen regent acting on behalf of her stepson, she took the affairs of the kingdom into her hands. Pretty soon, she would be acting as a king in her own right, and the trajectory of the 18th dynasty would never quite be the same. How did Hatshepsut get to the amazing position that she did? And, more importantly, why did she do what she did? Tutmose II and Hatshepsut didn't have any sons together, which made for a bit of a complication when he died. There was a daughter, Neferure, but no heir to the throne that was the blood of both the king and the queen. So when Tutmose II died, the throne was going to Tutmose III. No questions asked. Or at least, maybe it would have done so had Hatshepsut been any different a person than she was. Now reconstructing the personality of this woman is surprisingly difficult, and depending on the historian you read, you will get characterizations of her that are either sympathetic and describe her as doing what was necessary regardless of personal desire, or less sympathetic, which suggests that Hatshepsut was a megalomaniac and wanted all the power she could grab. We're going to try and find the truth of that today, but I can't make any claim to success. When Hatshepsut became queen regent, her claim to authority was supported by many, many precedents before her. Queens, dating all the way back to the First Dynasty, had often taken charge of the government in the name of their infant sons, when their husbands died before the children could come of age. If Hatshepsut took charge of the kingdom in the name of young Tutmose III, however, there was a slight complication. Simply put, Hatshepsut was not the king's mother, and the king's mother herself was a concubine, with no administrative authority and no political experience. So while it was entirely practical that Hatshepsut should take power, it was still out of keeping with tradition. This meant that Hatshepsut had to find new ways to legitimize herself, and she did this through two principal means. The first of these was political. She gathered support from wealthy and powerful individuals who could back up her claim to authority and support her in the government itself. The second one was a more symbolic explanation, in which the queen styled herself as an heir both to her father, Thutmose I, and to the great god Amun. We'll get into that story in the next episode. Today, I want to focus on the practical affairs of how Hatshepsut came to power. If anybody opposed the queen's ascension, they wisely kept their mouth shut, and for the first two years of his reign, 
Thutmose III was merely the king in name. The real power was wielded by Hatshepsut. As stepmother and aunt to the young king, she claimed authority above and beyond that of his actual mother. Hatshepsut, after all, was a king's daughter and a king's wife. If Isis ever thought about even challenging that, I'm sure Hatshepsut swatted her down quickly. So, for now, Isis steps out of our story. In order to support her claim to power on a political and practical level, Hatshepsut needed allies among the government itself. Fortunately, we know of at least one of them, a very important personage named Aneni. Aneni was the chief architect of the crown under Hatshepsut, Thutmose II, and Thutmose I. Wealthy and influential, Aneni was responsible for some major public works, including the royal tomb of Thutmose I in the Valley of the Kings. Aneni was respected and trusted by the crown, and he seems to have been more than happy to support the queen when she took power. Quote, Thutmose II went into heaven and united with the gods. His son, Thutmose III, took his place on the throne of the two lands. His sister, the god's wife Hatshepsut, governed the land. The two lands were under her direction. She is served, while Egypt is humble. That description comes from Ineni's tomb, where he wrote a lengthy autobiography of his own life, and was polite enough to sync it up with the reigns of the various kings whom he served. When one king died and another came to power, Ineni recorded it, and made a reference to what he was doing in that particular period. He also had some choice words to say about Hatshepsut. Quote, she is a mistress of command, with excellent plans, who satisfies the two riverbanks when she speaks. Her majesty praised me. She loved me. She recognized my excellence in the palace. She enriched me with property. She advanced me. She filled my house with silver and gold and all good things of the palace, without me saying that I desired anything. So, Ineni got rich off Hatshepsut as well. This is quite interesting. I wonder if the queen was a bit more generous with her wealth in order to garner support from the nobility. It's not a bad angle if you can afford it, and Hatshepsut certainly could afford it. She was sitting on three generations of plunder and acquired gold, brought back to Egypt from her predecessor's campaigns abroad. If the treasury wasn't full to bursting when she came to power, I'd be very surprised. So, if we trust Ineni's biography, then it seems that Hatshepsut shared the wealth of the state around with the nobles in order to garner more support for her own rule. It was certainly effective, because Ineni finishes off this little section of his biography by saying, I say to you people, hark, do good things, and what was done for me will likewise be done for you. The subtext of this, I think, is of course, support the ruler in all ways that you can, and good rewards will come to you. There were other ways that Hatshepsut could secure her legitimacy and her authority, and one of those was to marry her stepson off to the son of a wealthy individual. The best example of this is a chap named Amos Pen Nekbet, which means Amos from El Kab. He was an important individual in his own town. He was an ex-soldier of the Egyptian army, a veteran of wars of Thutmose I and earlier. Now that he was retired, it seems, Amos Pen Nekbet tried to ingratiate himself with the royal government. He seems to have succeeded quite well, because he soon became tutor to the queen's daughter, Neferure. Using this as leverage, Armosa then came to the queen with a proposition. You see, he had a daughter, a daughter who was unmarried, and Hatshepsut had a stepson, a stepson who could marry as many women as he liked. So, Armosa suggested that Thutmose III, the king of Egypt, marry his daughter Satia, 
and that the two houses should be united in loyalty. Well, this was a good opportunity. Amosa Pennekbet came from the town of El Kab, which was a base of support for the royal household. El Kab was the home of individuals like Paheri, the tutor of Tatmos II, and Amosi Bana, that legendary warrior who had served in so many wars for Hatshepsut's predecessors. For the rulers of the early 18th dynasty, this town had been a fantastic base of support, and Hatshepsut exploited this fully. By marrying her stepson to the daughter of Amosa Pennekbet, she secured additional loyalty for her own reign, and support for the royal household more generally. The fact that Tatmos III might not have wanted to marry Satya, well, that was irrelevant. Tatmos III was the king, and he would do what he was told. With that marriage organised, Hatshepsut could take off her second accomplishment in order to gain legitimacy. She had secured the support of Anini and officials like him by improving their economic status and wealth, and she had satisfied Amos Pennekbet's vanity by making him tutor to her daughter and father-in-law to the king himself. But there was a third group from whom Hatshepsut really needed to gain support if she wanted to be a legitimate ruler. For this, she was quite blessed, because she already had an in with this crowd. This crowd was the priesthood of Amun, the priesthood of Thebes. From about year two onwards, Hatshepsut seems to have started appointing priests in the temple of Karnak. We know this because a man named Hapu Soneb suddenly comes to prominence as the high priest of Amun. He does this from year two of Tatmos III onwards, and this suggests to us that he was an appointee of Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut probably knew Hapu Soneb from her own days as the god's wife of Amun, a title which she still retained even though she was now queen regent. Back in the day when she had served in the temple on a daily basis, serving and purifying the statues of the gods, Hatshepsut would have come to meet Hapu Soneb, and perhaps the two had become friends, or at the very least, she had recognised in this individual someone who would support her claims to authority without too much trouble. Well, from year two onwards, Hapu Soneb's career took off, and suddenly he was in charge of the largest and most wealthy temple in all the land. Not a bad promotion if you can get it. And with his promotion, Hatshepsut now had the support of three separate institutions. She had the support of the royal architect Ineni and all the administration that came under him. She had the support of Hapu Soneb and all the priestly officials who came under him. Finally, she had the support of Amosa Pennekbet and the town of El Kab in general, which was so important to the royal household. With this in place, Hatshepsut was increasingly secure in her authority, and she became more confident in the expressions of her power. This started to take a symbolic turn, as Hatshepsut began to commission monuments depicting herself and Tatmos III as what can only be described as co-rulers. The queen began to commission decorations to temples and additions to small shrines up and down the country. In Egypt and in Nubia, monuments were erected in the name of Tatmos III, but Hatshepsut was always included on these monuments. She was often portrayed standing in front of Tatmos III, the traditional position of superiority. This suggests that by this time Hatshepsut was well ensconced in her power, and no one was really objecting to the fact that she was in charge of the country. So, perhaps she felt confident enough to assert her authority publicly, without worrying about any backlash. On most of these temples on which she appears as a queen, Hatshepsut makes offerings to the god Amun. Hatshepsut was very fond of Amun, as you might expect from her days as a priestess. The kind of familiarity that her priesthood days had given her with the god eventually led to Hatshepsut claiming that the god himself wanted her to rule on earth. In other words, she made it seem as though her regency was not really her idea, but Amun's. Quote, 
And so Amun, the lord of the thrones of the two lands, he made me rule the black land and the red land, as a reward for them. May your majesty, Hatshepsut, make them perfectly accomplished. You shall create for me functions and offices, filling up the granaries, providing the altars with offerings, introducing the priests into their duty, improving the laws, establishing rule, making greater the offering tables, and increasing the portions. Make more than what was done previously, enlarging the palaces of my treasury, which enclose the marvels of the two lands. The basic premise of these isn't hard to figure out. Hatshepsut presented it as though the god Amun wanted her to rule, and that he had commanded her to increase the prosperity and wealth of the land, and to make it stable, to improve justice and governance, and to make sure that the power of the god was respected everywhere. Hatshepsut essentially presents herself as the instrument of God's will. She is his representative on earth, through which his wishes would be accomplished. It was effective, because it gave her the legitimacy she needed in order to govern in a very unusual situation. This was the primary way by which she justified her assumption of power, and the control she had over the kingdom, despite the presence of a legitimate king. This system worked well, and for the first five years or so of Tutmose III's reign, the queen governed as regent effectively. No one opposed her, and no one argued. But eventually she realised that if she wished to continue governing effectively, the queen was going to need more authority than she already held. As Tutmose III grew older, there was greater and greater chance that he would challenge her, and eventually remove her from office. It's at this moment that Queen Hatshepsut starts to become King Hatshepsut. The moment itself is not exactly clear. We know there was a coronation somewhere along the line, but the Queen doesn't make explicit reference to when it was, so we don't have the date. All we know is that slowly, over the course of maybe a couple of years, her artistic representations started to change. They stopped representing her as a woman, with queenly dress and titles, and started representing her as a man, with male dress, male posture, and male titles. Eventually, this culminated in the moment where a craftsman first chiseled onto the walls of a temple the title Nesut Biti, King of Upper and Lower Egypt. At this point in time, Hatshepsut began to adopt a cartouche. She styled herself as Ma'at Ka-Re, or Ma'at, order, is the essence and spirit of Re. In this, she was making reference to the idea that, at Amun's command, she had taken control of the country in order to give stability and good order. Hatshepsut was very interested in representing herself as someone who brings good order, who makes the kingdom stable and prosperous. This wasn't just idle boasting, she seems to have genuinely believed it, and as we'll see over the next couple of episodes, there's even good evidence that she actually did it. So by calling herself Ma'at Ka-Re, Hatshepsut stated loud and clear what her ideology was. Continuity, legitimacy, tradition, and power. The queen was now in control of the country as a king. And along with that, she made a pretty important public decision. Around the time that Hatshepsut took the throne as an official king, she dropped her title of God's Wife of Amun, effectively leaving her post in the priesthood of Karnak. Why she decided to drop this title is unclear, but it may have something to do with the fact that she replaced it with the title of King's Daughter. Hatshepsut really stressed her connection to Tutmose I, especially after she became king. On public monuments, she often represented it as though Tutmose I had, before he died, chosen her as his official heir. The fact that this had never been proclaimed publicly, or no one had got around to mentioning it until she became king, was simply a matter of technicality. 
With the title of king's daughter now replacing her priestly role, Hatshepsut had taken position as the ruler of the country on an official level. Looking backward with the benefit of hindsight, it's not hard to imagine that Hatshepsut started planning this moment from the very first day she came to power. But I'm not sure that's entirely fair to her. We see Hatshepsut come to power in a very unusual situation. As much as she certainly enjoyed this power once she had it, it's not clear whether she had planned this from the get-go, or whether it was something that she simply figured out over time. Certainly her political actions over the last few years of her regency had been very conducive to her power grab. She had made august marriages between noble families and the royal lineage. She had made appointments of new officials who could support her claim to authority. And she had distributed generously the wealth of the royal household, in order to secure the alliance with certain powerful officials. Hatshepsut clearly was a very clever woman in terms of the political game. She put herself ahead in a world where men traditionally dominated. The result is that today historians tend to look at Hatshepsut as someone who had aimed from the kingship from the beginning. I'm not sure if that's true, but certainly the more and more that she got power, the more and more she seems to have enjoyed it, and the more and more she wanted it. By the time she actually took the kingship for herself, Hatshepsut was the most powerful individual in the country. Where she was going to take that power was a question only she knew the answer to. (laughs) 